Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. Acts chapter 22 will be in this morning. The book, the book of Acts, as we've been mentioning now for a number of weeks, is about the kingdom of God. Acts begins with Jesus pre- preaching the kingdom of God for a period of 40 days before he ascends into heaven. And Acts ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome preaching about the kingdom of God. It begins and ends with references to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that God is bringing in and through Jesus Christ. And that he continues to bring in and through our proclamation. The first Christians were responsible then for taking the kingdom of God to the nations, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We've been looking for several weeks now at speeches in the book of Acts, or sermons in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts has the following sermons. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon to the Jews who had been gathered together at the Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches a sermon to the Jews in Jerusalem who were opposing the Christian message because Stephen and the early Christians were preaching against the temple. In Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches to Cornelius, a Roman, a Gentile. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches to the Jews. And in Acts 17, Paul preaches to the Athenians. In Acts chapter 22 that we'll look at this morning, Paul is speaking before the Jews who are gathered in Jerusalem and then in Acts chapter 26, Paul is going to speak to King Herod and uh, Herod Agrippa. These are, this is a, basically the majority, or if not all, of the speeches or sermons uh, in the book of Acts. The sermons focus upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we've noted for a couple weeks. The central message was, to the Jewish people, the scriptures have been fulfilled. The promises of the Old Testament have found their fulfillment in Jesus. And God has proven that fulfillment through the resurrection of Jesus. To the Gentiles, Paul crafts the message that's relevant to them, but he always ends it with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 22 now, Paul's going to tell his own story. And let me set you a little bit of the context. Paul is a Jew uh, who had been raised in Jerusalem. We're going to see this in the the story here in Acts 22. Uh, Raised in Jerusalem, but becomes a Christian early on. And, and, and after becoming a Christian, he, he goes off and he's commissioned to be the missionary, the pastor to the Gentiles. The word Gentile means the nations. For the Jews, there are us and them. We're Jews, they're the nations. So the Gentiles are everybody else. And Paul now goes around for a number of years preaching the gospel to everybody else. Well, that doesn't sit well with the Jews. They look at at Christianity or at at Jesus or the Messiah or the Scriptures as something exclusive for them. They forgot everything we've been reading about this morning. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, to the nations. The gospel is supposed to go to the nations. So Paul takes the gospel to the nations and the Jews are extremely angered. Not just at the Christians who are doing this, but especially at Paul. He's one of our own and he's a traitor. So Paul now appears in Acts 21 in the city of Jerusalem. Hadn't been there for 13, 14, maybe actually closer to 20 years. Hadn't been there. So they've heard of him, but they haven't seen him. They don't know what he looks like. And so someone spots Paul, and they begin beating him. They drag him out of the temple complex and start beating him, because they don't want to kill him in the temple complex. That would like be bad. So let's drag him outside the temple complex, and, and they start pounding him. And, and the Roman, centurion, Roman soldiers in the area go, hey, what's going on? And they come and begin to break it up, and they take Paul into custody. 
Paul explained to the Roman soldier at the end of Acts 21, says, hey, look, let me, he speaks in Greek to the, to the Roman soldier. And the guy says, oh, you know Greek. Yeah, yeah, let me speak to the people. Let me explain. They'll believe if they hear my story. So Acts chapter 22 now, Paul begins his speech to the Jews in Jerusalem, who just a few moments earlier wanted to kill him. Brothers and fathers, now listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became quiet. Verse 3. Then Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which is up in the north, brought up uh, uh, in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. At the high priest and, uh, as the high priest and all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them uh, to their associates in Damascus, and I, I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into to Damascus. There you'll be told all that you've been assigned to do. My companions, verse 11, led me by the hand into Damascus, but because the brilliance of the light had blinded me, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words uh, and hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all peoples of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Verse 19, Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voice and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. So much for a successful missionary campaign. <laughs> when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became quiet. Verse 1 and 2. Paul, Paul has a connection point with them. I mentioned it already that when we, when we share our faith, we want to find a, a point of connection. And, and Paul's his connection, and he continues on, Look, I'm a Jew. I'm like you. I was, I was raised in this city. I studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the, the most famous rabbi of the first century, as far as we know. One of the most prestigious rabbis in the world. And Paul probably traveled to Jerusalem about age 12 or 13 to study under Gamaliel. I, I, I grew up. I became a young man in this city. I studied under Gamaliel. And, and I persecuted the Christians. I know what you think, and I know why you think, because I thought that way too. I too, I went from synagogue to synagogue to, to hunt them down. And, and I was on my way to Damascus to, to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And then Jesus appeared to me. 
Now, the, the story, by the way, is told for us in Acts chapter 9. So, so the sermon that, or the speech that Paul's given is just a, a, a recapitulation or a restatement of what happened in Acts chapter 9. And, and I think the, the blinding of Paul on the road to Damascus is one of the most uh, incredible events in, in, in history. Uh, Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul goes, Who are you, Lord? You see, he answers his own question, doesn't he? Who are you? Lord? I, I know your name. It's Lord. And, but I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Well, wait a minute. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you, and I know you're the Lord and, and all that, but, but, and I know you, like, don't make mistakes or anything, but you said, why are you persecuting me? And, I, and I'm not. You see, I'm, I'm going after the Christians. And the answer to the question, who are you, Lord, is, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And it's the, oh no, moment in history. Have we got a big misunderstanding going on here? Uh-oh. Now, often, by the way, a trivia question might be asked, you know, when was, where was Paul converted? And people say, oh, on the road to Damascus. He's not converted on the road to Damascus. He's blinded on the road to Damascus. And if you think about it, blindness is never associated with coming to the light, uh, coming to the knowledge. Of the, uh, he's, he's converted in Damascus by a man named Ananias. And we'll talk about that in a few more weeks. So Paul's thinking, hey, look, I'm, I'm connecting with the people here. They're, they're tracking with me. I, I'm like you. I was raised in the city. I, I persecuted Christians. And then Jesus appeared to me. So here's what happened. You're going to respect my story, right? Because, I mean, uh, you know, I, and then I, I went to Jerusalem and I'm like, well, Lord, these people will listen to me because I'm one of them. Uh, th they'll understand, they'll believe. And then Paul says, Jesus then told me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the crowd listened to the Paul until he said this. They raised their voice and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. No, Paul doesn't compromise the gospel. He finds a point of connection. And it's not unreasonable to suppose that maybe a few people actually did listen and maybe at some point in time they did become followers of Jesus, but the majority of people were like, no, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. He found a point of connection with them. He thought they'd respect his story, but at the end of the day, Paul did not compromise the gospel either. I believe, by the way, that Paul's story and his testimony, and Luke tells it twice. He tells it in Acts chapter 9 when it happens, and, and he narrates the story. But then Luke tells it again by having Paul tell it. So the story's there twice. And why is the story there twice? Well, what, why do we need this speech of Paul, which simply just goes over the details of what we saw in chapter 9? Because Paul's testimony was a powerful testimony to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, you can argue if you want to be a skeptic. That this Christianity stuff was a farce. The disciples made it up. That it was a scam from the beginning. Jesus never really did any of these things or whatever. But they went out and they just wanted to go ahead and make a name for themselves and told a story. You know, the disciples have, have a motive for doing that, right? I mean, if Jesus really was crucified and they, and they thought he was the Lord, you know, they're going to look like fools when they go back home and tell everybody how wrong they were. So instead of going back home and telling everybody how wrong they were about Jesus, they make up a story about Jesus and they propagate a brand new religion and they're successful at it. Okay, that might make sense why the disciples might do that. There's serious problems in, in that story, mind, mind you. 
But what doesn't make sense is why Paul believes it. You see, if the disciples are telling a story, there's no way this Paul guy's ever going to believe it. He, he religiously is well, excuse me, is well trained. He, he's, he's trained by the, one of the leading rabbis of the first century. He is a zealous Jewish con convicted who believes that the Christians are blaspheming God. Jesus is Lord. No, Yahweh is Lord. Not Je It's blasphemy. These Christians need to be punished. And he's going from synagogue to synagogue, persecuting them. When Stephen was stoned to death, it was Paul giving approval at the death of Stephen. So why would this guy become one of them? Why would he ever convert to Christianity? What motive is there? As soon as he converts to Christianity, look what happens to him. The Jews hate him. He's an outcast. They try to beat him in the, in, in the temple. And, 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 and this revolt here is only saved because the Roman soldiers go, oh, hey, hey, we better get you back into the prison where you're protected now. When Paul becomes a Christian, even the Christians are like, well, we're not sure you're actually, a, uh, whose side are you? Right? Maybe you're trying to infiltrate us. Paul is imprisoned. He's persecuted. He's opposed. Jewish Christians and Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are, a, why would this man ever become a Christian? a strong argument for the truth of the gospel. So let's go to the question, what does this mean for us today? And the first point is this, each of us has a story. We've been looking at, at how do we share the gospel. If the book of Acts is a commission to us, the church, to carry forth the gospel to the nations, we are God's witnesses. How do we do this? Last week we said we need to make sure we connect with people. Uh, don't just greet them when they come in, but welcome them and get to know them and learn their names. But next is, we have a story. Sometimes people think that as we age, uh, 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 we've kind of lost our ability to be of value to, uh, to, to society. I mean, physically, we're no longer as, as strong or uh, as energetic as we used to be. In our, uh, we, we get to a certain point where our earning capacity kind of peaks, and the older we get, we, we kind of lose it. And as a result, we kind of think, well, I'm no longer able to be of service to the kingdom of God either. But we never lose our ability to impact God's kingdom. In fact, the older we are, the more wisdom, experience, time, and even sometimes money we have to impact the kingdom of God. And if you think about it, if the battle that really is going on is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, and if we are the primary players in the kingdom of, the world, uh, of God, then wouldn't it be wise for Satan to sideline as many of us as possible? I'm too old, I'm not educated enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not articulate enough. Whatever, whatever it might be, Satan wants to come along and says, no, sideline us. Neutralizing our gifts, creating doubt. We question whether we should financially support the church, or we're so busy we don't have time for kingdom work, or we're too old, I can't be of any use to the work of the church. I was talking with a young man recently, I've been mentoring for a little while, about ministry, and I was explaining, you know, he's in seminary and going, going through an education to prepare for, for ministry. And I said, look, one of the things that seminary doesn't do a good job of is preparing you for the business side of church. Let's be honest, it's still a business. A bit, you have to hire people and fire people. You have to look at spreadsheets and know how to do budgets. And Seminary doesn't train you for those things. I said, one of the best things that we have in the church are those who that have experience and wisdom in those areas that can come in and support people that went to seminary and didn't learn how to do any of that stuff. 
Sometimes we need to hire people and you have business experience with contractors. Sometimes you have business backgrounds and you have management, we have management issues and you help us. Sometimes you have teaching backgrounds and you can help with classes. Sometimes you're entrepreneurs and you can help us with outreach with new ideas. Sometimes you're just servants and you just help us get things done. Some of you are administrators and you can help us administrate. You have experience with kids or you have time or you have money. This is how the church functions. We need to utilize our gifts and our resources to help further the work of the church. And most of you, if not all, have dynamic testimonies. You have a story. What does this mean for the church? It means that our greatest asset is still you. It's still God's greatest asset. And you're needed to invest those assets into the lives of others. I mentioned last week that young people often learn uh, and come to believe what they believe through, the, through experiences. You know, my generation, those of us, most of us in this room, uh, we came to believe because it was a truth. And we hear amazing grace, how sweet the sound that says the wretch like me, and we're like, wow, I'm convicted. There's a holy God, and I'm a wretch, and I know it. And amazing grace, how sweet the sound that says the wretch like me. But young people don't believe they're wretches because they don't start off with the assumption that there's a God. And therefore, they're not... They're not wretched in some God's eyes because there is no God. And, and this pluralistic mindset that they have, they compare themselves to everybody else. And where do they conclude? Well, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy or that guy. Or just open your history book. I'm not Hitler. I'm not Stalin. I'm not Pol Pot. I must not be too bad. So how do they come to embrace truth through experiences? So tell them your experiences. There are several things that may happen when you share your stories. Number one, they may connect with you. Uh, you see, uh, young people often think this way, and that is that, uh, that old people have always been old, right? When, when you're young, you think old people, because my whole life, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 10 now, and, you know, as far as I can remember, the last six years, Grandpa's always been Grandpa. He's always been old, or Grandma's always been old. Through our stories, they find out that we, too, have dreams and hopes. We sometimes made mistakes, and we fail to achieve some of our dreams, Sometimes God delivered us, but despite our failures, our stories help us connect with them. Help remind them, guess what? I haven't always been old. I, I, I used to be young like you. and I, I used to do the things that you do. I know where you're at because I've been there. And our stories can provide hope and caution and advice. The next thing that might happen is they may allow you then to speak into their lives. As we connect with them and share our stories with them, they may then begin to allow us to hear their stories. And it may begin to break down barriers. Stories are powerful. May not have worked for the Apostle Paul in Acts 22, but, but Peter does the same thing in Acts 10 and Acts 11. He tells a story. This is what's going on. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, the first point then is this. The gospel is about making disciples. It's about making disciples. The young generation, as I mentioned last week, and I gave us a, uh, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go online and, look, and listen to the message because it was like dynamic. It was like one of the greatest, I, I know, I know. It was like one of my, uh, just kidding. But go online and listen. When we talk about what the younger generation's like. We, we mentioned last week, it's not just a generational gap. It's a worldview. It's a, it's a radically different world that they're growing up in today. When I was uh, 19 years old, my buddies and I uh, used to walk down First Street in downtown Livermore. And uh, we used to hand out tracks. 
right? You ever heard you know, tracks where, okay, a little piece of paper, have a couple things on side, and they tell you about Jesus and, and the story of the gospel, why you need to be saved, whatever, how to get saved. We used to hand these tracks out. Because for us, the gospel is about conversion. It was about you coming to know Jesus. And I remember praying with a guy to receive Christ one, moment, one day on, on First Street in Livermore. I'm thinking, but, but, but there's more. And, and I knew there was more. And I'm thinking, he, he, he left. And, and who's going to care for this guy after this moment? I, I'm, I'm not sure that he, he ever got connected to the church. My buddies and I actually realized that the best place to hand out tracts was outside the bar. We thought, well, you know, because most people wouldn't receive them, and they take them, they throw it away. Well, the drunks come out of the bar, and they, oh, thank you, and they put it in their pocket, and maybe the next day or a couple days later, they take it out before they do the wash and go, hey, and maybe in their sober moment, they might go, wow, what's this? But we were still practicing a gospel of conversion. It was the world of Billy Graham and the four spiritual laws, and it worked because people had an assumption that they started with that there was a God. And we told them, believe this and everything will be well. But that doesn't work today. It doesn't work in the younger generation. We have to build relationships with them. Authentic relationships. And that's the next thing, and that is this. Discipleship is about making relationships. Today's generation values relationships. And it's still one of the most significant reasons why people connect with Christianity is because they have a relationship with someone. In the past, we used to disciple people by just bringing them in here on a Sunday and, and hopefully discipling them, and we do all these good things. It doesn't work that way any longer. This is why, by the way, some of our biggest efforts recently have been to meet with people one-on-one, -on -one, spend a lot of time with one another. We, we, we asked before, uh, about last uh, August, how many of you want a, a mentor, or need a mentor, or need to be in a, a spiritual relationship? We need to have these relationships with one another and with the, those outside, the, uh, outside these walls. As I mentioned last week, most of the, uh, the younger, much of the younger generation simply is, they're not going to come to church. Not right away. Their worldview just doesn't give them any reason to come to church. Why should I? It doesn't make sense. I don't believe it. If we pay attention to what's happening in the movies and television shows and music and the things that's pervading our culture, we can see how the, shift, how, how the shifting changes have, have taken place. When I was young, you know, we had Batman and Robin and Superman, right? And the Incredible Hulk with Lou Ferrigno. You guys know what I'm talking about, that's right. Uh, in those shows, the good guy always captures the bad guy and, and ends his tyranny. But nowadays, if you're not aware, the Marvel movies that, that are out there, I don't know how many there are, there's a dozen of them or more, and, and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars every single movie. They're, they're being watched by millions and millions of people. The Marvel movies now are asking bigger and deeper questions. Iron Man comes out and he stops and, and, he, and he stops the evil guy from doing his evil. But in the meantime, all kinds of collateral damage happens. Iron Man crashes into buildings and cars are overturned and chaos is, it happens. Yeah, the bad guy stops, but everybody else suffered. And in the Marvel movies, they're coming along saying, Who put you guys in charge? Captain America and uh, Iron Man, you guys can't do what you're doing any longer. Now you have to listen. We'll, we'll tell you when you can do what you do, but you guys can't be in charge any longer because injustices are happening. Who made you in charge to determine what's right and what's wrong? Governments are asking the same question, of course, and it begs the question, who made you the government in charge? And this is the question that young people are asking then. And that is, if we can ask of Captain America who made you in charge, then we can ask of the government who made you in charge. And they begin to question. 
And the latest Marvel movie, Thanos, comes along. If you haven't seen the Infinity War, I don't want to, no spoiler alerts here. Thanos comes along and he has a plan. He's going to gain all power. And so that he can make a world where everyone lives in peace. Now, he's the bad guy. He's opposed by Iron Man and by Captain America and by all the other guys. And he's fighting against them, but Thanos' plan is actually to create a utopian society. In order to do that, he's going to have to eliminate half the people. Because there just isn't enough stuff to go around for everybody. In order for everybody to live in peace and harmony and everything else, it's going to be great, but there's just too many of you, so I'm going to eliminate half of you. This is what the kids and the generations today are growing up with. These questions of justice. My favorite movies are the Bourne movies. I, I love Jason Bourne movies. And, and the Jason Bourne movies are all about the, the, the government has this secret plan to, to create these assassins who, who go out and do our job, uh, uh, do, do, the dirty, do, do the dirty work. And then Jason Bourne finally begins to realize who he is and what he's done. He's like, I don't want to do anything about that. And, and this is the worldview that our, our, our society and our kids are being inundated with, and that is that governments are not always doing good things. They're creating secret institutions and individuals and making them, making them uh, um, assassins. And then when that assassin wants to go on the good side, the government's going to try to eliminate that assassin. And the kids begin to question government and businesses and industries and the church. And they're disillusioned. Some of you might be aware that gender identity is a huge issue today in many of the younger, younger kids. It's the result of the postmodern worldview invading our culture. They don't know what gender they are. We, we kind of chuckle and go, what do you mean you don't know what gender you are? It's obvious. It's easy to decide what gender we are. And we can stand back and judge them as foolish and ignorant. But if we do that, we lose our ability to witness and share Jesus with them. You see, when they accept a worldview that says there's no truth, there's no explanations that account for everything, there's, there's no one that decides right and wrong, then they're left wondering many things. Some of the things they're left wondering are things that are obvious to us, like what gender I am. But to mock them or to ridicule them would be insensitive. So we come to them with the gospel. And we share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ that our identity is actually found in Jesus. And we meet them where they are. The next thing about discipleship, by the way, is that relationships are actually fun. And this is the good news. The gospel is about discipleship, and discipleship is about relationships, and relationships are fun. If you have a mentoring relationship with someone, you probably enjoy getting together often. You like them and they like you. Now, one of the key things I would encourage you as you build relationships with people is this, is to take the posture of a learner. Share your story with them, but then listen to them and let, you let them tell you their stories. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, My brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Right? There's an old adage, you have one mouth and two ears, use them in the same proportions. Share your story, but then listen to theirs. St. Francis said this, he said, we must seek to understand more 
then we must be understood. The gospel is about making discipleship, about making disciples. And the gospel of discipleship, however, is much harder than the gospel of conversion. Here's the good news and the bad news. It's about discipleship, and discipleship is about relationships. And relationships are fun. It's great. It's enjoyable. But it's also harder. You see, it was easier when Billy Graham came and did a crusade. We could fill the Colosseum with 100,000 folks, and we can get 25,000 or more to come forward and dedicate their life to Christ. That was easy. Our churches became flooded, and everything was great. But discipleship is one-on-one. And sometimes it takes months or even years. Building trust takes time. It may even be a long time before actually they even want to hear your story. And, and, and during this time, they're watching you, though. They're watching us. They want to see our lives. And this, here's an important point, by the way, and that is, that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. In fact, sometimes I think we, we think that we have to be perfect in order to, to maintain... A, I have to let you least think I'm perfect, because that's what a Christian is. And, 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 and actually, that's the most harmful thing we can do. I had a person say to me one time, I said, look, I, I think I've been discipling this guy for months and months and months. He actually was the assistant coach of my daughter's, uh, on, my, uh, on my son's soccer team. Uh, Tony and I used to make that ministry. We're going to coach a soccer team, and I'm going to pull one of the parents in and make them be our assistant coach, and now you are our mission field. So for the next you know, three months of the soccer league, we're, gonna, we're just going to disciple, and we're going to have you over for dinner, and we're going to disciple you and mentor you and show you Jesus. And so after months and months of this, uh, with one young man, one man I, said, I said, I think you should, you know, or what's stopping you from coming to know Jesus? And his answer was, I'm not good enough. And I realized I had mistakenly given an attitude of, oh, you've got to be better, you've got to be better, you've got to be better. Our best witness often comes when we fail and we acknowledge our mistakes and confess our sins and ask for forgiveness in front of them. Then they realize that we're like them. That They think, hey, this is something that, that I can do too. If Rob can do this, then I can do this. Let me make another point, and that's this. Never underestimate the power of prayer. If we truly care for them, then we will pray for them and pray for them often. Even prayer in the middle of the relationship. There might be an an instance where you meet somebody in a coffee shop and you're like, Lord, give me the opportunity to speak to this person. Give me the opportunity to start a relationship with this person. Okay, Lord, guess what? Thanks for starting it. Now I don't know what to say. Lord, give me words to say. And then pray for them. Take notes. I love the notes document on my phone. Take notes. So that I can remember, oh, that's right, this this person has this happening in their life. Or they're they're worried about this, or they're worried about their child, or they're worried about a job, or they're worried about health of a family member. And then I go look it up. Oh, that's right. And I send them a a text message. Hey, thinking about you, praying for your mom, praying for your job, praying for your child. Prayer reminds us that and expresses to the Lord that we are dependent upon Him. And it's the Holy Spirit that convicts, not us anyways. So what's the way forward? How do we go forward as a congregation, as Northminster? We don't know where the culture is going. We discussed that last week. We're in the middle of this postmodern, millennial, postmillennial world. Uh, you know, and, and the millennials, by the way, are, are, are 20, 20 years old and over now. We have another whole generation going up even more disillusioned than the millennials were. We don't know where they're going. Most churches in Europe have already died, and most churches in America are dying. 
Likely, in most all cases, because they fail to recognize that the ways that we've done things for years aren't working any longer. Some have suggested, Lord, we hear sirens out there, and we pray, Father, for your mercy and your grace in whatever may be happening. We give the police officers or, or first responders, whatever it may be, wisdom and discernment to care for and nurture those who are ill or, or, or struggling, and we ask your blessings and safety upon them all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some suggest that it's okay that churches are dying. That's just the way things are. It's just a cycle, you know? And the reality is, that's not the way things are. The church is growing rapidly in many parts of the world. I don't know if you know this, but the church is growing more, most rapidly in Iran. The fastest growing Christian community is in Iran. It's exploding in China. It's exploding in Africa. Now, Paul didn't compromise the gospel. He simply presented it in a way that would gain the attention and interest of his listeners. In this instance, in Acts 22, it didn't work. Rid the earth of him. But notice he presented the gospel in a way that would, 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 they would listen. He didn't compromise the gospel, and that presented a problem. As I said again last week, you know, it's not just a, a generational gap where my parents liked Elvis and I liked the Eagles. I said the Bee Gees last week, but that's all right. Uh, I like the Eagles. There you go. The Eagles are better. Yeah, the Bee Gees were just, yeah, that was just, that was a weird moment. Sorry. I used to be young also, right? But today's youth are growing up in a radically different world. Not just the technological advances that are, that are rapidly changing the world. By the way, if, 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 if a child was born after the year 2000, like you know, my daughter and many of your children and grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, or great-great... No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, did you know that they have grown up in a world that, that their entire life they've had technology? Their entire life. Mackenzie was born in 2003. By the time she was old enough to really understand anything, cell phones were already in existence. So what can we do? Well, I stressed last week, and I'm going to reiterate today, that the first thing we need to do is connect with them. When they come in, connect with them. The greatest asset we have is you, your stories, your persons. When they visit, whether young or old, doesn't matter, connect with them. Learn their names. Get to know them. When you see them next week, hey, how are you doing, Joe or Sally? And then ask them out for coffee or for lunch. Find opportunities to connect with them and learn more and more of their stories. This is what Paul did. He begins in Aramaic. I'm a Jew. I was raised in this town. I said it in a Gamaliel. And I too persecuted Christians. And then Jesus appeared, appeared to me and blinded me. And here's what happened. And let me make another note, and that's this. An important element of our conversations with them is a focus on the kingdom of God. So be careful about discussing explosive topics with them. Issues like global warming are really important to young people today. So affirm them. You know what? I believe that God created Adam and Eve and he created humanity for us to care for his creation. And I also believe in, or I'm not sure about global warming. But I do believe that we are to care for creation and we should be concerned about it. Because that's what... I don't have to affirm whether I believe in it or not. It doesn't matter. But I affirm them where they're at and say, hey, let's talk about this because I think we should care about creation. The gospel is offensive enough. We don't need to argue about things that might further offend them. Next, the thing is this. If we want visitors to come back, we have to remain to be relevant to them. 
to show them that we also are a place for them where not only are they welcome, but it's a place where we can connect with them. And we can solve this a little bit. We've kind of done this a little bit, and I want to explain to you a couple things very briefly at the end, why we're doing what we're doing, and that's this. We can connect with them with bulletins and technology. If they walk in, they're going to be, hey, you know what, that pastor is actually relevant. He, he, he does his slides off his cell phone, and, and they see the use of technology. They go, okay, okay, great. Young people are connected with technology all week long, by the way. They don't want to come in and be connected. They don't want to come in and say, hey, would everyone text their favorite verse? They don't want to do that. They want to kind of get away from technology a little bit, but they also want to know that we are relevant to them. So why did we create the bulletin the way that we created it? And I mentioned this to a few of you. Uh, if you have your bulletins, by the way, most of you do the, this is what I do. When I open up the bulletin, I read the right side. That's what most of you read, I'm sure, right? The, why? Because that's, that's, I want the information. I want to know what's going on, and I want the information, I want it quickly. This is a, 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 a um, screenshot of ESPN.com. This just so happens to be one of the websites that I go on occasionally. Uh, and note, I, where my, um, I don't have my pointers, my laser, sorry about that. All right. Note on the very top right-hand corner of, this, of the page, there's a bullet of, of, of news. That's what I look at. I want to know the information, and if I want to hear a story, or see, I'm going to click on one of, those, one of those links up at the top. However, in the middle of the page, and if you just scroll up, right? Scroll, on a Mac, you scroll up. All right, on a PC, you scroll down. All right, if you keep scrolling, you, if I don't want to know about the Duke-North uh, um, Carolina State game, then I've got to scroll up and see what the next story is. And then I don't want to, I want to know about that. I keep scrolling up. I, I, don't, I hate scrolling up. I want to know what's going on, and if I want to click on one of those stories, I click on it. But why did ESPN.com change its homepage? Look at the BBC. There are no links at all on the right-hand side or anywhere else. It's all visual. It's all, it's all story. And if you want to know what's going on at BBC News, you have to keep scrolling up or scrolling down, depending on what kind of computer you have. Why does it look like that? Because that's what Instagram looks like. That's what Instagram looks like. That's what our kids are looking at. That's what they spend their time on. And that's Instagram. And if you want to know the next story, you have to scroll up and scroll up and scroll up. Or Facebook, scroll up and scroll up and scroll up. So when young people come in, you know what side of the page that they look at? They look at the left side. Because the left side has pictures and graphics that looks more like Instagram. So we're trying to be relevant and at the same time communicate to both, right? So the right side's for most of us and the left side's for the younger people. We have to be relevant to them. What does this mean for us as a church? It means our greatest asset is you. And we need you to invest in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of life that you've given to us. And we just pray indeed, Lord God Almighty that that gospel of Jesus Christ would go out to the nations. That it would shine forth from these walls, from our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, at our schools, amongst our friends and families, amongst our parents and our kids, and even our spouses. And that Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ alone, would be magnified and glorified and exalted. 
Father, we pray that the church in America wouldn't have to die to experience a revival, but that a revival would take place now, just like what you're doing in Iran and Africa and China and other parts of the world, that you also would quicken your spirit in our hearts and our lives to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to reach older people and younger people. Knowing that that diversity is good, it's healthy, you created us, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus, and amidst all of our diversity, we can rejoice because this is what God's people look like. They look like old and young. They look like black and white, Latino and Asian. They look like rich and poor, male and female. And help us to embrace that diversity, and yet at the same time, maintain unity that my kids that our kids that our grandkids that our neighbors kids and parents and siblings might know the life peace hope and joy that comes from only knowing jesus christ our lord in your name we pray amen Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.